Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. The Ahrensburg staging of the art in their collection. It's both playful, but like chess, uh, it is really serious business. In this episode, I speak with authors William Sherman and Ellen Hubler, and author and book designer Mark Nelson, about their new book, Hollywood Ahrensburg, Avant-Garde Collecting in Mid-Century L.A. Louise and Walter Ahrensburg built one of the 20th century's greatest collections of modern art, comprising 40 works by Marcel Duchamp, multiple paintings by Picasso, Georges Braque, Paul Klee, Henri Matisse, and Jean Miro, and nearly 20 sculptures by Brancusi, not to mention numerous pre-Hispanic and African sculptures and an extensive library of works by and associated with the Renaissance-era scientist and statesman Sir Francis Bacon. What is less well-known is the extent to which the Ahrensburgs went to install their collections with an artist's eye to nuanced relations in style, motif, and scale. As a result, each room in their Hollywood house was in effect a work of art in its own right, and the installed collection a sublime cabinet of curiosities. Joining me to talk about the Ahrensburgs as collectors are William Sherman, Ellen Hubler, and Mark Nelson, authors of the new book, Hollywood Ahrensburg, Avant-Garde Collecting in Mid-Century L.A., published by Getty Publications. It's my pleasure to introduce Mark Nelson, a partner at McCall Associates New York, co-author and designer of this very beautiful book. Bill Sherman, co-author and director of the Warburg Institute and professor of cultural history at the University of London's School of Advanced Study. And Ellen Hubler, co-author and associate curator of art of the Americas at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining me on this podcast. Nice to be here. Very nice to be here. Now, Mark, in March 1945, James Thrall Sobey, then director of the Department of Painting and Sculpture at New York's Museum of Modern Art, asked the collectors, Louise and Walter Ahrensburg, if their house had ever been photographed. Why did he ask that question? Well, thanks so much for having us, Jim. In one sense, Sobey asked the question rhetorically as a jumping off point for his 1945 essay about the Ahrensburgs in View magazine. In fact, he answers his own question in that essay straight away. But I I think he he can also be seen as posting a genuine call to action. Perhaps he's asking somebody, anybody really, to take up the charge and get it done. Obviously, he knew the Ahrensburgs would read his essay. So I suppose, in essence, this means he he was also asking them to care for their own legacy. He had visited their Hollywood home, which held somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 art objects and a few thousand books. And he had seen works by Picasso and Brock and Duchamp, etc., jammed together on the walls. He had seen how those paintings were contrasted against a pre-Columbian sculpture and a strange mix of antique furniture. And he'd seen how that furniture sat on floors covered with multicolored Asian rugs that were sometimes piled two or three deep. In the same essay, he wrote that the home was invested with magic, and I think he knew that he was seeing something very special, a completely different mode of display from what a viewer would encounter in a museum. I think he also knew that it wouldn't last, that that sooner or later it would be dismantled. And so until then, they hadn't had their uh, collection photographed? They had 
a little bit. Beatrice Wood, who's a very good friend of theirs, had taken some photographs uh, right away in the late 20s. You know, people would ask them, can you take a picture of such and such painting for such and such collection? But really, there weren't too many of the house itself at that point. A few. Yeah. Well, who were the Ehrensbergs? Well, to greatly oversimplify, and I hope this won't come across as glib, they were trust fund babies. I mean, they were born into high social stations, which came with certain expectations, and, and they knew they would inherit wealth. Louise herself was the sister of one of Walter's Harvard classmates. He, he had started there in 1896, and they met not long after that. But having laid out this fairly rudimentary biography, I suppose I would add that they were born into a rapidly changing America, culturally, socially, artistically. And they would cast aside at least some of those social strictures and, and reinvent themselves quite thoroughly. They, they would do that a few times throughout their lives. Well, Bill, I think the Ehrensberg's name is well known to many of us and their role as a great collectors of, of art, uh, obviously very well known as well. But I didn't know that Walter Ehrensberg had an interest in Francis Bacon, the 16th, 17th century philosopher. What, what was that all about? Well, it couldn't be more of an interest. Walter was interested in Francis Bacon from the start. Uh, he, like many of us, encountered him at Harvard as he was an undergraduate. But I think it's safe to say that he went on to spend more time uh, with Bacon than anyone else in the world, including quite possibly his wife. <laughs> and it's worth remembering that the Ehrensbergs not only created alongside this amazing art collection, the world's largest private library of books by and about Francis Bacon. And indeed, by the time they died, the umbrella under which they put all of their objects, everything, including Duchamp, including Brancusi, was called the Francis Bacon Foundation. Now, that may sound weird for somebody who, again, we associate with adventurous modern art, but it's to underestimate uh, the importance of Francis Bacon to modernity. I'd say from 1850, for maybe a century, Francis Bacon is the culture hero of the Renaissance period. And for many people, famous people, smart people, not just crazy people, Bacon was the most important writer of the English Renaissance. And in fact, for people like Freud or for Mark Twain, Henry James, Bacon was most likely the true author of the plays attributed to Shakespeare. Walter encountered that theory when he was still an undergraduate at Harvard and like many others, ran with it. But I don't think anyone else ran with it quite as far as he did. It was just an extraordinary lifelong enterprise to immerse himself in Bacon's writings. One of the things that Bacon gives to the Ehrensbergs in terms of their intellectual world is their interest in multiple times and bringing together the past and the present. And that is fundamental to the English Renaissance. It's fundamental to the word Renaissance, which itself means rebirth. It brings something from the past to life in the present for the future. But likewise, Francis Bacon is the first author in English to write about codes and ciphers, and he's the first major Renaissance author to give us a proper theory of allegory, of multiple meanings. And so if you're going to be looking for things behind the surface or things uh, hiding in plain sight, Bacon is your guy. He's, he's your playbook. Walter Ehrensberg was a precocious Harvard undergraduate. He was editor of the Harvard Monthly, 
president of the University Literary Society and class poet at his graduation in 1900. What was his poetry like? Uh, pretty traditional at first. And in fact, he was the great poet of that class, even though one of his best friends was Wallace Stevens. And don't forget that the people around him thought he was the great mind, the most brilliant or the most creative mind of his class. Up until 1916, he seems to be on track as a pretty respectable poet. He publishes two volumes with Houghton Mifflin. They're pretty traditional. They're very 19th century in their feel. In fact, a lot of the reviews pointed out how nostalgic they were. Um, 1916, things take a strange and experimental turn, and he becomes radically influenced by experimental poetry. He writes a poem called For Shady Hill, which is named after the, the great house at Harvard that he lives in. And this poem starts as at the end of an equation of two to green, which have the butters of extra broken on badges, biting a needle to partners. If only the bridge is fluent, let it not nice. <laughs> and that is really different. And it's actually easy to imagine him looking at this cubist exploded view work that's all around him on the walls and trying to do the same with language. What was his friendship like with the poets Wallace Stevens, whom we mentioned, Marianne Moore, and William Carlos Williams? Did he meet them while he was a student at Harvard? Uh, Stevens actually was one of his close friends at Harvard. The rest of them he met uh, quite a bit later when he was in New York. Well, Mark, when did the Ehrensburgs move to New York, and what was their social scene like once they got there? Uh, as Bill mentioned, Walter started as a poet. So so in some ways, the Ehrensburgs started their married life together, really as they might have been expected to. They purchased the house, Shady Hill, as Bill has just said. Uh, Walter worked on his writing. And then in 1913, something absolutely seismic occurred. And that was the International Exhibition of Modern Art, what we now call the Armory Show. It just exploded into the American consciousness, and, and, and it brought modernism really to the forefront of a new cultural conversation. Causing the biggest stir, of course, was Marcel Duchamp's new Descending a Staircase number two. Louise, like many people, was initially repulsed, but Walter just went bananas for the stuff. William Carlos Williams, in fact, would later say that the show had hit him between wind and water. <laughs> uh, great phrase, isn't it? Yeah. Soon enough, Louise was converted, and even though they bought very little from that show, you know, you know, they just completely upended their lives. They sold Shady Hill to Paul Sachs, who many of your listeners might know went on to become the director of the Fog Art Museum, and they just started a new bohemian chapter in their lives in New York. They just threw themselves wildly into everything avant-garde. Quite quickly, I guess, they had their apartment in New York on West 67th Street, photographed by Charles Sheeler, so a notable photographer. Describe that relationship for us, but also describe the apartment for us and the collection as it was at that point. I've been really lucky to have visited the actual apartment. So I can say from experience that it is very dramatic. The walls in the main living room, which is the room that you see in the Sheeler pictures, are at least, if I had to guess, 25 feet tall with a massive set of windows on the north wall. The, the photos don't quite communicate how massive the room is. And it's just down the block from another notable New York hangout, the Hotel des Artistes. 
soon after they moved there, they began hosting uh, an artistic and literary salon. And these wild sort of all-night parties are, are really the stuff of art historical lore. You see that written up in, quite frequently in art history books. And the list of attendees there was really staggering. Francis Picabia, Albert Glaze, Louise Norton, Robert Allerton Parker, and of course Duchamp. The list goes on and on, and there are just too many remarkable names to recount. But that salon was really only in full swing for a couple of years, maybe from late 1914, I think, to early 1916. It's clear that the Ehrensburgs really, really loved shocking their guests with their artworks. We know that from multiple letters and, and other details. Sheeler's photographs, though, they date from about 1919. And we know this because the new Descending a Staircase number two is, in fact, pictured in them. They had bought it, I think, in maybe February or March of that year. That's a little late. The party energy was waning by then. But the breathless descriptions of what was seen there comes from Henry McBride. This is from, I think, the Dial magazine. Uh, Things by Gris, Brock, and Messenger in vivid colors pull the eye of him who enters the door. Furthermore, there is one of Picasso's reasoned arrangements in paint, some particularly dynamic African fetish carvings, and plenty of the latest local outpourings in Cubism. Some of the works individually verge towards violence, but they have been so carefully placed by the mad owners of the establishment that not only a perfect balance, but a genuine, if hitherto unheard of, harmony has been attained. Well, Ellen, uh, what brought them to Los Angeles from New York then in 1921? They seem to have such a vital life in New York. There were several causes of the move to Los Angeles. On the one hand, as Mark has mentioned, the Ehrensburgs had been having this wild salon in their home since, you know, about 1915, hosting these Dada artists, avant-garde writers, and sort of major people of the day. There's this amazing story about Isadora Duncan wildly embracing uh, Mr. Ahrensberg and knocking out his front teeth accidentally um, <laughs> as she comes in the door. So it was sort of this mix of all of these amazing people and clearly lubricated quite well with copious amounts of alcohol. Uh, but of course, after a couple of years, it could get very exhausting for them. And then as well, and probably more importantly, there are serious financial issues and reverses that necessitate the Ehrensbergs needing to rethink their lifestyle at this point. So on the one hand, Walter was always a soft touch with a lot of the people in his circle, lending the money even when it was clear that they would have no way to pay him back. But in this case, he had really gotten in deep. Um, so around the end of the decade, Walter had become very close with Marius Desaius, an artist, art critic, and dealer who's part of uh, Alfred Stieglitz's circle in New York. So Desaius has been written about before in the context of his crucial role in promoting African art to the few buyers in New York at this time who are interested in that kind of material, but not much really has been said about his selling pre-Columbian art as well. And he is, although of Spanish descent, he's born and raised in Mexico. So some of what he's offering, we assume, are pieces that he and his family took out of Mexico when they left the country. Well, so Desaius has a fantastic eye for art and design, but absolutely no head for business. And so when his first art gallery pretty much fails and collapses around 1918, Walter is very foolish to decide that Desaius's eye is so great that he needs to stake him in a second gallery, the Desaius Gallery, which opens in 1919. 
But as I said, Desaius is, is a terrible businessman and gets cheated by his partner in France. Um, and so he and Walter end up holding the bag and Ahrensberg in the end has to sue Desaius in 1921 for the sum of $118,000, which would be, yes, which would be equivalent to about one and a half million dollars today. So that amount, that enormous amount shows that Walter has spent a significant portion, maybe even almost all of his trust fund in this venture, which leaves Louise and Walter in quite a precarious position. Although it means that essentially she's going to need to take the reins financially. And that is the reason that it is always the Louise and Walter Ahrensberg collection, because it's really her money that ends up funding their whole collection. So in large part, the move to Los Angeles and to these rented houses that they move to is a way to cut expenses as well. They, they even try and sell some of their collection in 1922, but unfortunately for them, although very fortunately for everybody who sees their collection, uh, the market is kind of saturated at that time and uh, the works find few buyers. All of their friends were surprised at how easily they adjusted to the new California way of life. Um, it was the land of sunshine and the movie industry and sort of a fantasy life. And certainly it's a space that allows them a freedom, a new freedom that they maybe hadn't felt for quite some time. Well, Mark, what was the art scene like in Los Angeles when they arrived and they, or even when they were at their peak from the 1920s until the 1950s? And they were at the time when they were opening their house to a constant stream of visitors, as you put it in the book. Okay, so four decades in two minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Take your time. Uh, let's see. Um, well, the L.A. County Museum opened in 1913 and, and perhaps still had a little sheen of newness in 1921 when the Ahrensburgs arrived. Uh, but it was quite a conservative place. Uh, they didn't find a, a home really there. There was no Museum of Modern Art. In fact, there wouldn't be a modern art museum in Los Angeles for about a decade after the Ahrensburgs died. So let's say from the turn of the century until the end of the 20s, at least, in Impressionist-inspired plein air painting was the predominant idea. And I don't think this ever really goes away, even as it falls from fashion. That must have something to do with the weather, of course. The Ahrensburgs didn't have much interest in those pictures, and at any rate, as Alan has just said, they weren't in great financial condition during those years, so it really wouldn't have mattered anyway. It's really in the 30s, I think, around the time of the 1929 crash when Louise's inheritance kicks in, and then that's when they go on a buying frenzy, because now stuff is really cheap. Modernism is taking more hold, certainly in California at that time, in the camera clubs, certainly influenced by Edward Weston, their friend Edward Weston and others. And it's really during these years, the early 30s through the mid to late 1940s, I think, that they are robustly allowing visitors into their home. In the 1940s, as many people know, Surrealism lands with Dali and Man Ray, who both live in California for a time. Modernism across all disciplines, especially architecture, is really changing the landscape as uh, emigres uh, are fleeing Hitler. I think you could also just say that there's a last effort initiated in the 40s, in the late 40s, by Vincent Price to keep the Ahrensburg collection in Los Angeles. He, he forms a museum called the Modern Institute of Art. And from an audience and membership standpoint, it is a massive success. Uh, those exhibitions were well attended, and enthusiasm was really high. 
but the development dollars that needed to keep it running just couldn't be found. And um, it closes after two years, and the Ahrensburgs have to cajole their movie industry friends like Eddie G. Robinson to help Price pay the $1,400 he owes on the lease. Well, Bill, uh, who was Aline Lausheim, if I pronounced that correctly, and what role did she play in the story? Uh, I've heard her name pronounced lots of different ways. Uh, let's go with what you said. But actually, she was better known by a different name, which was Aileen Saarinen, uh, which she became after she married the great Finnish-American architect, Aero Saarinen. And it was under that name of Aileen Saarinen that she published uh, maybe her most famous book, which is called The Proud Possessors. It's a famous series of portraits of America's most important art collectors. But before she became Aileen Saarinen as Aileen Lausheim or Laukheim, she published some really great pieces of art criticism for the New York Times. And she wrote an incredibly vivid account of a visit of the Ahrensburg's house in Hollywood that was so good that we actually used it to open the book. And it takes us literally to uh, the front door of the house. And she describes what she saw. So she has been through this uh, countrywide research trip, looking at all of these uh, more or less traditional, extremely expensive, very predictable collections. And suddenly she comes to this house in California and she knocks on the door and she gets let in. And she says, paintings were jammed and crowded on every available space from floor to ceiling. They filled the porch, trembled on the backs of doors, and lined the bathrooms. There were a mass of other objects, ex-votos, bits of Americana, Indian sculpture, and African and pre-Columbian carvings. And then she says, how astounding, she reports, these gentle, gracious, past middle-aged people who are my hosts are as at home with this art, as unselfconscious and un unpretentious about it as one's grandmother was about Victorian chromos or doodabs. <laughs> well, what about Sharice Wilson? Again, you know, I'm not sure if it's Charisse or Karis. I think it's Karis Wilson. Uh, Karis Wilson, too, is important for the same reasons. She has a, a famous husband, Edward Weston. The Weston couple is extremely close to the Ahrensburgs. Um, but also like uh, Lausheim, Karis Wilson leaves behind really vivid accounts of what it was like to visit the house. But Lausheim only visited once, and it was very late in the uh, couple's lives. It was really just before the whole house gets packed up. Karis Wilson is there from the start, really within a year or two. She's a student at nearby Hollywood High, and she is allowed access to the house. And not only is she allowed access to the house, but she is shown around personally by Walter. And here's her account in her autobiography. She says, Walter Ahrensburg took me on a brief tour. There on the walls throughout the home were famous paintings I'd heard about but never seen. I knew from the moment I entered that exotic living room where Rousseau's apes peered out of their jungle at Matisse's woman in blue and Picasso's guitar player fraternized with Miro's primary colored geometrical creatures that I would return as often as possible. And then she came regularly and describes Walter asking her questions about the placement of work or unpacking the symbolism in the different works in the collection. And she finishes the section by saying, my delight in his wordplay, puns, conundrums, and cryptic meanings behind cryptic meanings were so stimulating, I felt buoyed up for days after a visit. 
Was he still writing poetry at that time, or was that all in the past? So he pretty much gives up writing poetry, and he ends up, I would say, rearranging the words of other writers. That is literally what he does day after day and hour after hour with Francis Bacon or with William Shakespeare's uh, language, trying to produce the right combination of words where the secret message testifying to Bacon's authorship of Shakespeare's works would emerge. But he's also doing poetry with the collection. I think this is a really important point, is that Bacon had this theory of allusive or parabolic poetry, where basically uh, the real truths are indirect. You never say what you mean right up front. You always have to dig deeper. You always go around to find the deeper meaning. And in a very rare statement about what he was doing as a collector very late in his life, Walter said, that Bacon's method for interpreting the world, this allusive or parabolic method, was the best way he knew to interpret the work of Paul Klee or Marcel Duchamp. Yeah. Now, in 1927, Ellen, the Ehrensbergs settled into their house in the hills just north of Hollywood Boulevard, which over the years would include additions by the famed modernist architect Richard Neutra. And one of their neighbors was Earl Stendhal. Who was he and what role did he play in their life? Yeah, um, definitely Stendhal would play a major role in the Ahrensburg's lives. Um, so Earl Stendhal moved to Los Angeles in the early years of the 20th century from Menominee, Wisconsin. And I think he shares with uh, the Ahrensburg's that idea of falling in love with the promise and possibilities of Hollywood. He started out in, in Los Angeles actually selling chocolates, which is a trade that he'd learned from his parents in in Wisconsin. Uh, but by 1913, he is already selling art, and this is what he will he will do for the rest of his life, and that he will found what would become a multi-generational art-dealing enterprise in Los Angeles. So while Stendhal sold all kinds of art, from plein air paintings that Mark was mentioning, local artists, but he also welcomes uh, and the Mexican muralists and is also selling European modernists. He's he's well recognized for having brought uh, Picasso's Guernica and, and shown it in Los Angeles in 1939 as part of this broader tour in the United States. But I would say that in the mid to late 30s, Stendhal starts selling ancient Mexican art or what we would call often pre-Columbian art and becomes incredibly successful and well-known in this particular area. Stendhal is not the neighbor of the Ahrensbergs until 1941, the moment when he's gotten the Ahrensbergs so hooked on pre-Columbian art that they have quite a few outstanding invoices for these sculptures, and they decide to trade Stendhal the deed for the property next door rather than paying cash for what they had bought. So they do become neighbors, and it's actually a really Machiavellian arrangement for Stendhal because Ahrensberg has a constant supply of new art coming in. But also the other significance of the Stendhal's is in preserving the Ahrensberg house. So after the, the death of the Ahrensbergs, the Stendhal family uh, acquires the, the Ahrensberg house um, and all of um, Earl Stendhal's descendants will live and sell art there until about 2016 when his grandson, Ron Dahman, retires. I'm trying to get a sense of their social life and the people around them, the people who advise them and building their collections and so forth. And one of them is, of course, we've already mentioned him, but Duchamp. Tell me about 
uh, Mark, uh, his relationship with the uh, Ahrensbergs and when he came to Los Angeles in 1936, it was the first time he'd seen them in 10 years. So why had it taken him so long to cross the continent and rejoin his good friends from New York? Well, because of the splash at the Armory show, Duchamp was already a celebrity when he traveled to New York for the first time in 1915. Walter Pock, one of the organizers of the exhibition, brought Duchamp over to see the Ahrensbergs right after he stepped off the boat, literally. And from the moment they met, they were really peas in a pod. Walter and Louise both spoke French, so that made the introductions easy. The Ahrensbergs were summering in Connecticut. They arranged for Duchamp to live in another studio apartment in their building, and they exchanged the rent for ownership of one of his most famous works, The Bride's Grip Bear by Her Bachelor's Even, which we often just call The Large Glass. They both loved word games, puns, chess, and of course art. Uh, and two of Duchamp's famous artworks, Comb and With Hidden Noise, are actually collaborations with Walter. So they had a very natural relationship, but like any relationship, it had its ups and downs. There were periods of elation, periods of great communication, periods where the conversation goes quiet. Uh, and occasionally there were feelings of mistrust or betrayal. So on the cover of our book, for example, uh, you see a picture of Louise and Walter taken by Louise's great friend, Beatrice Wood. And in the photo, Louise is looking straight at the camera. She's really looking straight at Wood, I think. And she has a slightly unhappy look on her face. And this may be because she was really unhappy with Duchamp at that time. We know from her letters that she felt that Duchamp and his business partner, Henri-Pierre Rocher, were inflating prices on, on the Brancusi sculptures they were selling. So Walter seems maybe a little caught in the middle. His gaze is falling to the ground. And, and there's this sort of Michelangelo moment with his fingertip on her knee. And Duchamp, who is known for his general affectation of indifference, looks, I hate to say it, a little bit needy. And you know, in the end, though, the Ahrensbergs considered themselves his, his protectors, and they called themselves his silent guard. And they wrote that their home was his living memorial. That's their words, not mine. You asked about 36. The, the simplest explanation is simply that he lived far away. And you know how that goes. I mean, a year can disappear in a minute. He might have stayed away longer, but in, in 1936, he was called back to Paris by Catherine Dreyer uh, to repair the large glass, which had shattered in its crate after an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum a few years earlier. And she had mostly paid his way, so he traveled on to California to see the Ahrensbergs. Uh, he had also, at that time, just gotten the idea to create his box in a valise, which was an addition suitcase holding miniature versions of his artworks. So he had a, a real reason, a professional reason to revisit them. But he, he must have been absolutely gobsmacked, I think, to see his life's work hanging all in one place. I mean, he knew it was all there, but to actually just see it all in, in one place must have been an astounding experience. Yeah, now, Bill, you compare the Ahrensbergs to two contemporary collectors, Barnes with his great Matisses and Renoirs, among other paintings, and Peggy Guggenheim and her great surrealist collection and gallery designed by Frederick Kiesler. Both Barnes and Guggenheim had a high regard for interior design for the mise-en-scene in which pictures uh, and sculptures were seen within a room, and its contribution to the experience of how individual works of art are seen. How did the Ahrensbergs approach the matter of installation design? Was it anything like that? 
the way they're mixing as they did contemporary art with African art and the art of the ancient Americas? Well, there are some comparisons with uh, other collectors, and in particular, those people who set out to create what we might call house museums. Like Barnes, they created uh, ensembles of very unlike material with real precision that freely crossed the unusual boundaries of period or of medium, and even of tone or of register. Like Guggenheim, I think the Ehrensbergs also found the most avant-garde art entirely at home with old-fashioned furniture, with Persian rugs, with ancient sculptures, and with this Mediterranean shell of a house within which it all sat. So there are points of contact between them. And in fact, there were personal points of contact. Uh, the Barnes collection, of course, is another great uh, Philadelphia collection. And uh, the two collectors hated each other. They were absolutely scathing about each other whereas they were uh, much closer to Peggy Guggenheim. And then for a while, it looked like Peggy Guggenheim might try to create a house museum in California herself. But to answer your question about mise-en-scene and about interior design, I don't really think they were all that interested in interior design. I mean, if you look at the pictures, the furniture looks weird. Uh, and more important, the images, if you look really carefully, you'll catch these signs of, of what you just have to say are really careless or messy presentation. I mean, there's a, a water cooler in one, there's an open packet of paper in another. They're just not that bothered. It's a working collection for them. It's actually much more important to see it in that way. And I think Marcel Duchamp described Walter's work on Francis Bacon as being pursued, quote, with all the seriousness of a man at play. <laughs> like playing with chess. Well, I think the same would be said of the Ahrensberg staging of the art in their collection. It's both playful, but like chess, uh, it is really serious business. Now, Mark, you, you reproduced a photograph of the Ahrensberg's dining room with paintings by Miro and Mondrian, Clay, Picasso, sculptures by Brancusi, together with sculptures and vessels from China, Costa Rica, Gabon, Mexico. And you quote the great food writer, MFK Fisher, writing to the Ehrenbergs about her experience of an evening in the dining room. And she wrote, it was one of the most exciting nights in my life for some time. And of course, one of the most disturbing. Undoubtedly, you are used to hearing that reaction from people who see for the first time your fabulous collection. I found it almost unbearable, fatiguing, since I've grown unaccustomed to the impact of creation. I hope I shall see it again and be able to stand it longer. You were very careful to design the book as the Ehrenbergs collection was installed in their house as visitors would have seen it as they walked through it. Why was that important to you? Yeah, that, that quote from MFK Fisher is really something, isn't it? Well, as a visitor for many years to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and as one with a long interest in Duchamp, I was really always aware of the Ehrensburg collection because I would simply read their names on wall labels. And I can't describe it exactly, but when I first saw pictures of the Hollywood house, this must have been around 2003 or 2004, the feeling was just overwhelming. I just needed to be in that space. I was shocked to find out really that no book had attempted yet to document the place. So at that time, I think I was, I was very busy on other projects, but I would often stare at the ceiling at night before drifting off to sleep. And I, and I would think to myself, I need to rebuild that house. And then one day, and I think it was about 2008, I just woke up with a burst of energy and said, you know, today's the day I start. Uh, 
And I suppose I knew, I just knew inside me that there was this big black hole in our understanding of California art history. By profession, I'm a book designer for museums and galleries. So even though it took the three of us 12 years to finish the research and writing, the design of the book looks a lot like it did on day one. It just pretty much formed in my head how you would go through the house. Did the Ehrenbergs install their collection by themselves? I think mostly yes. I mean, obviously the heavy things got moved around by people with muscles, but they frequently changed parts of the installation. I do think they occasionally made decisions based on outside influences. Ellen, did they have advisors helping them with the installation other than their friends? Yeah, I would say they obviously don't have a designer per se. In fact, the whole book is really about how they are, you know, creating and adjusting and recreating this house to mirror their own preferences and interests as they change over time. But in terms of their pre-Columbian collection, I would say they do have two main advisors in the formation and display of the collection. And those people would be Earl Stendhal, who we've discussed a little bit. And then on the intellectual or conceptual side of things, the Ahrensbergs also become very close to the Hollywood producer, Kenneth McGowan. So today he's probably best known as a pioneer in the first sound movies, or perhaps for his work as a professor at UCLA Film School. But he was also interested from his very early age in all kinds of non-Western art, particularly pre-Columbian, and he really digs into the scholarly side of it. There's quite a bit of correspondence between Walter Ahrensberg and Kenneth McGowan, with Walter clearly learning from McGowan and being guided by him. And in fact, McGowan even gives him a book list of the works he recommends reading and and in order, you know, start with the easiest books and then move on to more complex ones, which seems so wild as we think about this incredibly cerebral Walter Ahrensberg getting the, and here's the dummies guide to pre-Columbian art, and here's how you should read it in order from easiest to hardest. So I'm sure that Walter really learns a great deal about the history and meaning of these works from McGowan, of works that Walter had already bought just because he loved their aesthetic qualities. And Mark, what about Duchamp, and what role did he play in the house and the installation of the collection? Occasionally, Duchamp acted as a sales agent, frequently, I would say. He saw that uh, as a way to operate in the art world and, and make a little money without having to actually offer his own work in the gallery system. He definitely recommended, I would say, sometimes even pressured the Ehrensbergs to buy certain paintings. You can feel his presence in deals that were done with gallerists, for example, And maybe during his visits, he offered a suggestion about what they might do with the installation, but there's no real record of that. Other than that, I I don't really think so. They lived very far from each other, and they saw each other only a few times in person uh, in the later years. I think Duchamp was flummoxed, absolutely flummoxed on his later visits in 1949 and 1950. I I really don't think he understood their fixation with pre-Columbian sculpture at all. Bill, you described the Ehrensberg collection as installed in the Ehrensberg house as a cabinet of curiosities. What do you mean by that? And was such a cabinet a model for Ehrensberg's installation of their collection? Yeah, of course, uh, anyone who's a Renaissance scholar like me knows that term, cabinet of curiosities, because it was really one of the great models for domestic collections of, of diverse but wondrous or even provocative material, the Wunderkammer, the Wonder Room, or the Kunstkammer, the densely packed art chamber. 
those spaces, in fact, in the Renaissance period were created precisely by people like the Ahrensbergs, the wealthy, the cultured, but also the amateur, uh, but at the same time, deeply committed to owning and displaying mysterious things to friends, followers, or random visitors. Now, despite his passion for Renaissance culture and his awareness to uh, the Renaissance period's approach to collecting, I don't recall Walter ever referring to the Cabinet of Curiosities as a model for what he's doing. And in fact, in the James Thrall Sobey quotation, which serves as the epigraph, and in fact, with which you began our conversation, uh, Sobey compares the collection to another art-filled space, the studio. And that also strikes me as a really excellent way to describe uh, a collection that brings together really diverse materials in a way that's really alive uh, and really has the freshness of discovery, as Sobey talks about it. Yeah, well, Mark, eventually all of this would come to an end because it was clear that the Ehrensbergs collection would outlive them, so they had to do something with it. And museums all across the country sought after the collection. In 1944, the Ehrensbergs agreed that it should go to UCLA. And in 1944, they signed a contract, which ultimately broke down in 1947 over a difference with the university's board of regents. Ultimately, the collection went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, as we've said, over the interests of many other collections, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Museum of Modern Art, among others. Why Philadelphia? You know, the Ehrensbergs loved being courted, and, and they loved playing museums off one another. The biggest problem they had, and, and I don't think they even understood it to be a problem, was that no credible institution would touch Walter's crazy project. They really actually expected that whoever took the art collection would not just receive the incredible library, but actively continue Walter's work. And in the end, it was really a battle between Chicago and Philadelphia. There's a long, drawn-out negotiation between all parties. And of course, Duchamp has his fingers in the pie, too. But really, Kimball wins by convincing them that their lives will continue after they're gone. Did they put restrictions on the installation of the collection? Would it have to be all be up at one time and in the same orientation from year to year? Well, not not exactly. They agree that the pre-Columbian can be moved, but they like the general idea that he's going to put it all there and he's going to put it all there into perpetuity. Yeah. Now, Bill, what was the fate of the Francis Bacon Foundation? Well, the Francis Bacon Foundation is really important because it keeps the library when that is not in the end given to Philadelphia. Philadelphia also, just to finish Mark's uh, story there. Philadelphia also wins because they persuade the Ehrensbergs that there will be a home for their book collection, which is the library company of Philadelphia. That ends up not happening. The library stays behind. And in fact, it stays quite local in Los Angeles. It's in Pasadena for a few years. And then it's given its own custom built house in Claremont College. And it is there all the way until the mid 90s. And in 1995, the librarian who had been Walter's original secretary, dies, and the collection is given in its entirety to the Huntington. So it moves back to Pasadena, where it is today, and where I found it when I was a uh, fellow uh, at Caltech and, and at the Huntington. And I think what's important about it is, is it's not only the, uh, the library, which is, again, one of the great rare book libraries of the period. No two ways about it. They had more rare books in that field than the Huntington. So the Huntington has gained an enormous amount of rare book material, but they also 
got back the Ehrensberg's personal and intellectual archive. A lot of the archival material did not go to Philadelphia. Really, only those things decided to be art-related went to Philadelphia. So if you want to study the Ehrensbergs, you have to go to the Huntington. You have to look at the Francis Bacon material. And in fact, Mark and I were lucky enough to go out there for a while uh, with Francis Bacon Foundation money. So the foundation still exists and still gives the Ehrensbergs money to people like us. Well, Ellen, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the fate of the extraordinary pre-Columbian collection, which you've described so well. Where did it end up and why has it not received the attention the modernist collection has? Yes. So all of their works, the over 300 pre-Columbian works, were given to the Philadelphia Museum of Art with the rest of their collection and were displayed there after their deaths. But over time, many of the pre-Columbian works have come off view, and today there are only a few works left in the galleries as a complement to the Ehrensberg's modern works, although some have moved to a, a second building of the Philadelphia Museum. But recently, Princeton University Museum of Art and the Penn Museum have borrowed some of these works and are displaying quite a few of them, and so some works are coming out onto public view. In terms of why it hasn't received the same attention as the modern collection, that's a great question. I think in the 1950s, there was still all of this curiosity about and enthusiasm for for ancient art. But over time, I think interest in contemporary art has become so prevalent um, and a preference for named artists is so strong today that that, that is something that has tended to mean that the pre-Columbian kind of gets sidelined. People are so interested in contemporary issues that they feel that there's less connection to works from centuries ago. But I guess I would say that what the Ahrensbergs did in their house was to make this material come alive. And we know that Beatrice Wood, Louise's closest friends, talked about their house and and saying that the the conglomeration of the whole collection, what she called Oriental rugs, Mayan princesses, Mayan masks, the whole thing was so alive and so marvelous that it was cold and dead in a museum. So perhaps with this book, we hope to bring this collection back to life and and give it back to people in its entirety. Well, as you know, since 2019, the Getty Research Institute has launched the Pre-Hispanic Art Provenance Initiative to document the origin, sales, and acquisitions of pre-Hispanic art all across the U.S. and Europe. We take no small pleasure in that fact, uh, just as Getty Publications takes a very great pleasure in publishing this important and extraordinarily beautiful book of yours, Hollywood Ahrensburg Avant-Garde Collecting in Mid-Century Los Angeles, for which we have Mark Nelson, Bill Sherman, and Ellen Hubler much to thank. It is a fantastic book, and it's a fantastic story and a great uh, contribution to art history. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman, with audio production by Gideon Brower, and mixing by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and more resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Or if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, Write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>